prayer to play in our lives. And we talk primarily about the, the role of preparation that prayer brings. Preparation in realms of human hearts. And, and when you really start thinking about it, you know, the seed of God, as we said last week, is sown into the hearts of men. And so I think it's, it's, it's accurate for us to say the kingdom of God is about human hearts. It's not about geography, you know, the, the years of the Crusades and fighting for ground and geography and uh, some of the holy wars that have been more unholy than anything else. They weren't about the hearts of men. The kingdom of God is about the hearts of men. That's what it's about. And so whether it comes down to relationships that are here and difficulties we have or people that are needing to come to know Christ or people in the community we're reaching out to, ultimately what's at stake is the hearts of men. And there's a realm of the hearts of men that we're called to do some things in the natural, but that we can never accomplish because nothing in our toolbox can fully touch the heart of a man. Only God can do that. And so prayer becomes that place that you and I appeal to God to do in our doing what we cannot do. And all of our efforts need to be bathed in prayer, whether it's efforts to reach out to a friend or a neighbor, to be a family towards one another, to reach into the Lakeview community, to teach and preach the gospel, to share with each other truths of God. All those things have got to have the power of the Spirit. Now, we've been kind of spending some time, if you'll look in Luke chapter 11 here, we've been spending some time digging through Luke chapter 10 and 11. We started this talking about the mission of being salt and light. Your life has a calling on it. And I'm, I'm talking outside of the calling, whether you go to work uh, at a job at the post office or whether you go to work uh, at a, a business downtown somewhere, or whether you go to work as a pastor, you, your life has a calling to be salt and light upon the earth. And in that calling, there's a mission. So we find ourselves on this mission, and this setting here has provided for us some good insights into important qualities about that mission. And when we move into chapter 11... We find Jesus talking about prayer. And last week we read this passage and we're going to come back and study it a little bit more carefully this week. But I want to ask us this question. It's in your outline. Why is a consistent and vibrant prayer life so hard to sustain? Why is having a consistent and vibrant prayer life so hard and if you feel it's hard, and I think if you've tried to pray, you do feel it's hard. Only those who are in here who have not attempted to have a vibrant, consistent prayer life cannot amen what I just said. Christians throughout the ages, men and women that we would have great respect, movers and shakers in history, have had a hard time doing this thing. Brian Edwards in his book Revival says, almost every Christian leader today laments a lack of personal prayer. But very few are determined to do anything about it. We are not sufficiently concerned to make a radical alteration in our diaries and get down to the unproductive and unnoticed battle of assaulting heaven. Faced with an emergency among the churches or in our own lives, right, we prefer to tackle the problem ourselves. When life gets busy and stuff starts coming apart around us, we get busy. Nothing wrong with being busy, nothing wrong with addressing situations and going for it. But if we haven't realized the, the part that prayer has to pray in that, 
then we're going to spin our wheels a lot, waste a lot of time and a lot of effort, no matter how well-intended we were. It will not accomplish all that God intended it to accomplish. In Andrew Murray's excellent book, he has a little section here, and this, this book was actually birthed. Andrew Murray is writing this book about right at the end of the 1800s, about 1897. This book is gathered together. In that time, Andrew Murray had been spending some time. He was a, a pastoral leader. He led many pastors. He was part of an association, actually a couple of associations of churches worldwide that have all kinds of missions movements taking place. And what he was finding as he went from group to group to group and these are missions organizations that are taking the gospel to the ends of the world. These are, these are not people sitting around somewhere in some city church doing nothing but showing up for a meeting every once in a blue moon. These are people who have been enraptured with the cause of God in their lives. And as he would go from group to group to group, he began to notice a great deficiency in prayer. So much so that it inspired him to write the book, The Ministry of intercession. So this is not birthed out of his casual encounters with some real slacker Christians. These people were living on the edges of the Christian world. He says, at our last Wellington convention for the deepening of the spiritual life, the morning meetings were devoted to prayer and intercession. Great blessing was enjoyed both in listening to what the word teaches on the subject and in joining together in united supplication. Many voiced the opinion that we know too little of persistent prayer and that it is indeed one of the greatest needs of the church. I've recently attended a number of conventions at a Dutch missionary conference at Langlate. Prayer was the subject of the messages. At another in Johannesburg, a businessman said it was his deep conviction that more of the Spirit and practice of intercession was what the church of our day greatly needed. Later, at a Dutch ministerial conference, we spent two days on the work of the Holy Spirit and then three days on the relationship of the Spirit to prayer. Everywhere people confessed, we pray too little. Along with this, there seemed to be a consensus that because of the pressure of work and deep-rooted habits it was almost impossible to hope for any significant change. These guys didn't have cell phones, iPods, personal computers, email, TV. Can you imagine? What was wrong with these people, huh? <laughs> Can you just see that there's a chronic problem for man? Praying. Praying is never an easy thing to do. John Calvin, writing long before... Um, Andrew Murray, you will never aspire to pray until you urge and force yourselves. Prayer is not easy, and we must be prepared for it to be a challenge. And what I want us to do today is I want us to get prepared for prayer to be a challenge. Matt, can I borrow you for a second? Can we do a little show and tell here? Just to, just a audience member. He has no idea what I'm about to do. Ah! <clears throat> wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Come on, Matt, cool. uh, that wasn't in the script. <clears throat> All right. Are you ready? Yeah. A little different response this time. Yeah. I don't think I could have knocked you over as easily. You could have. I should have put my feet. Yeah, well, you're, you're not, you know, you need to learn a little bit you're about standing <laughs> up. Like, 
what's, what's the difference in us getting knocked over by something? We're not prepared. We talk about prayer. And, you know, prayer has this real... You, I'm sorry, you can sit down. Was he about to hurt me? Prayer has this real innocent-sounding tone to it, doesn't it? Let's read a book on prayer. It sounds like a nursery rhyme. Let's pray. Do you pray? Oh, sure, I pray. It's just a nice-sounding little concept. We're not prepared for it to be hard. We step into it, and it's much more difficult than we could have imagined it was ever going to be. We hear a message like last week on prayer, and it's sort of like attending a... How many guys are salesmen in here? Not too many. Um, I was going to ask, how many of y'all need to lose some weight? This is a different issue. But it's kind of like going to either a sales seminar or a weight loss seminar, right? You know, you go to these things and you hear some guy who's this great salesman and he talks about, you know, I was making $5 a week and then I, I started to do this and I made this plan and I got on the phone and I made these contacts and he teaches you this method and by the time he's done telling you a story, he's up to $2 million last year in income. And you go to these seminars and you listen to that and you come back as a salesman and you go, I'm, I'm getting up in the morning. I'm putting my plan together, I'm making my list of phone calls, I'm going to be on the phone all day long, I'm planning out the next month, you know, because he who fails to plan, plans to fail, right? You're going to learn that at the sales seminar. And so you're all fired up and you're ready to go. And somewhere along the way, the presentation was a lot easier than the doing of it. Right? Same thing, those of you who have been to like a weight loss seminar Somehow somebody stands up and says, I, you know, I used to be the Goodyear blimp, and now look at me. I'm, you know, and then just this little spelt thing, and they did this program, and, and it worked great, and what I needed to do was this and this and this, and they shared all that with you, and there's another person comes up, and another person comes up, and another person comes up, and you get inspired, and you, and you say, okay, January 1, things are going to be different. I'm at the gym, I'm watching what I'm eating, you got a little measuring thing going on in your kitchen. This, your whole world is upside down. How are you doing at the end of January? Right? And for some reason, prayer can be just like that. We hear something on prayer. It taps into the deepest convictions of our heart. We realize, yes, that's true. Oh, what am I doing? I've got to pray. And then we go step into praying, and it's hard. And we get discouraged, and we want to quit. Well, helpful today, hopefully. Helpful, realistic expectations if you're going to have an impacting prayer life. One... We need to be preparing to persevere in prayer and not just to pray. And we're going to see that today. When Jesus prepares people to pray, he prepares them to persevere in prayer. He does not just prepare them to pray. Two, we need to be prepared for effectual prayer to be difficult. No going into this. What we're signing on for is going to be hard. There will be moments of discouragement. Let me warn you in advance. You will want to quit. You will feel like there's no reason to continue to pray. You will lose heart in doing it. Know that going in so that when that happens, you don't get knocked over backwards by it and your prayer life goes out the window. Let's look together here at Luke chapter 11. It says, now Jesus, verse 1, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, I want some of that. That's my translation. Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. I mean, they saw something in Jesus' prayer life, which I think the church needs that. We need provoking prayer lives to provoke one another. 
But they, they saw something in Jesus, the way he interacted with the Father, the stuff that came out of his interactions. You know, they must have started figuring out if Jesus spent all night in prayer and, you know, and they looked around for him, they got up the next day and he'd been up praying all night. They must have been wondering, oh, my goodness, what today is going to be like, because he had been with the father and they learned something about his prayer life and they wanted to know it, too. And verse two, it says, and he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Now, I'm not going to spend any time on that aspect of what Jesus said. This is a wonderful outline for prayer. I think there's very important content that should inform us when we go to pray. Elements that, you know, I just kind of bulleted them in your Outline there that when we come to God, we come out of a relationship to God. Know that you don't have to stroke God like he's a stranger. There's a covenant relationship that exists between you and him that he has made. He wants you to come. You are not intruding in space that you're not welcomed in. You pray because he is your father and he responds to you because you are his child. And he's made it that way. So that relationship needs to warm us and inform us. That we're not just coming before the uh, official clerk's office of heaven to meet a stranger who we may or may not be able to stroke the right way and bribe the right official to get something done. This is our father. This is the prodigal father who runs down the street to embrace us when we come to him. Then he brings this perspective. Father, hallowed be your name. Holy, holy, great is your name. You know, if you and I don't come to God realizing his greatness, he just won't come. And, and there's a key here, and I can't spend time in these, but there's a key here. The degree to which I'm convinced of the greatness of God will be the degree, degree to which I persist in prayer. I, I will find it very easy to give up on prayer if I at any moment become convinced that God will not do this or cannot do this. And sometimes, you know, nobody here, probably nobody here, ever stands up and says, God can't do that. He can't do it. The way it comes off sounding is, well, you don't know my husband. And you're not saying God can't do it. You're just so impressed with the sin of your husband that you've kind of given up on letting God do what he can do. He brings kingdom interest. And this is so informing. Your kingdom come in every situation of life. That's the agenda. More so than God, I would really like... This toy or that thing, I would really like for this to go this way. Although I believe God honors much of our heart's desires when he's the one cultivating those desires in us. But the governing principle about every situation in life is, God, your kingdom come now. In this setting, in this relationship, amongst these lost people, your kingdom. God, bring your kingdom. I think this is the ambassadorship of being kingdom ambassadors, that we are the ones standing upon earth and saying, God, I insist. Not the kingdom of this world to rule in this situation, but your kingdom to rule. I'm, I'm filing a petition, God, before the courts of heaven. Let your view be represented by one who's an ambassador on your behalf. Let this situation be about your kingdom. And that's what you're doing when you're pleading that case. There's, there's daily needs that we're bringing before God. There's issues of being right in our heart with God. By walking through forgiveness. Making sure I'm not thinking I can stand before a holy God who has forgiven me 
while I have unforgiveness towards one person in my life. You are misinformed. You are on dangerous ground to stand and do that. It, it, is, it, it is an anathema before God. It is an offense before God that God would, would send His own Son and would pour out His anger and His wrath on Him instead of you for the list and the litany of sins that are in our own lives. And then we look to somebody else who sinned against us one or two ways. And we won't forgive them. Don't waste your time before the throne of God. Make sure you've dealt with the issues of forgiveness. The Bible clearly says, set down your offering, come back later when you're right. But watch what happens here next. A couple of verses here on content, and he quickly moves into something else but related to prayer. Verse 5, and he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. If you guys who have visited little Mexican huts when we've traveled in the third world countries and you find out you know, there's, not, there's no such thing as a bedroom, they just all gather into a place in that room and they all sleep in the same spot. And so literally this person would be stepping all over his family to go find something to be able to give at the door. Uh, of the person who's asking. What verse was I in? Thank you. Verse 8. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, his persistence, his continual coming, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. And those, all those verbs have a continuous dynamic to them. And it flows right out of that thought. This, this guy continues to come, continues to come, continues to come. When you come and ask, continue to ask and continue to ask. When you come and seek, continue to seek and continue to seek. When you come and knock, continue to knock, continue to knock. That's what he's trying to convey to us. For everyone, verse 10... For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? If you... What's interesting, just in the flow of this passage, is when Jesus goes from mission to prayer life, and they see his prayer life, and they say, teach us to do that, he spends a couple of verses on the content. And what's interesting, most people know more about the content. The Our Father, the, the Lord's Prayer, which really isn't the Lord's Prayer, it's a disciple's prayer. Jesus would not have been praying for forgiveness. We know a lot about that, but we don't know what comes after the verse. He spent more time talking about persistence than he did about content. Content's important, don't get me wrong. But he was very big on teaching on persistence. It's almost as though persistence and prayer are that they're two parts of the same thing. They're not intended to have a prayer life that doesn't have a persistence to it. They go together. And it's all throughout Scripture. Jesus says the same thing to his disciples in Luke chapter 18. Turn there real quickly. 
Luke 18, verse 1. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Please be aware. You're going to need to lean into this thing called prayer and be ready because you will lose heart in it. And here's the, the remedy to losing heart. He says, he said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Let me just for a second here. Think, take in what verses have just been spoken. Who cry to him day and night. One day and one night. How many of y'all think that's what this is referring to? One day and one night, right? If you'll just pray one day and one night, then you can get whatever it is that you need to get. Is that what this verse is saying? No, because the context is a woman who kept coming day after day after day. There was a season where she was going to beat the door down until the guy responded day and night. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The Son of Man comes. If he were to come today... Would you find a church who asked and seeked and knocked and would not take no for an answer? Do you remember the Canaanite woman, the Syrophoenician woman who came to Jesus? She came begging that he meet a need in her daughter's life. And she pleaded and pleaded. First, the disciples told her, no, go away. Right? Barrier number one. And Jesus himself told her no. Now, how many of you would come back again after God told you no? <laughs> but yet she did. And in her persisting prayer, God rewarded her for her pursuit. Why does the Bible teach this stuff all over the place? It uses these words like earnest prayer. Cries were being made. Now, this is not a nursery rhyme here. This is violent action. This is challenging stuff set before us. Well, here's why I would say persistence is such a prominent teaching in Scripture. First, prayer must conquer opposition. When you and I pray, there's something to overcome when we pray. That's for real. And that requires persistence. Second, prayer must conquer us. There's something in us that's got to get conquered if we're going to have a prayer life. And that requires persistence. Let me take those two apart for a moment. First, prayer must conquer opposition. You know, you and I need to factor in when we live life, but especially when we pray, we are praying in a fallen world. Right? There's such a thing as friction in the fallen world. There's resistance to every movement that we make in the spirit. You know, we're not in outer space here. Right? You, know, you jump off the, uh, the space. What's that thing? Space. Help me. Lands. Space shuttle. Thank you. I'm going to give that guy a free book at the end of the meeting. Um, you jump off the space shuttle in outer space, you're on your way and you're not coming back. There's, there's not any resistance in space. 
That's why they, you know, tie the astronauts to the thing. If they just they said, ooh, look how high I can jump. Mm, you'd never run out of high. You'd just keep going. Because the gravitational pull of resistance is not there. But you and I live on a planet where gravity is here. And you know, in a, in a similar way, physi- physiologically, when you and I walk around doing life, we take into account gravity. Right? You know, you don't walk out of the Winn-Dixie parking lot and there's four cars between you and your car and you just kind of go, I'll just jump. And you just kind of float and jump over those and boom, land right next to open the car and get in. No one does that. Immediately in my mind, I know, don't do that. You're going to need to walk around those four cars in order to get in yours. I have factored in resistance. When you and I go to pray, we have to factor in resistance. There's resistance present. There is resistance present in every person we are praying for, saved and unsaved. There's resistance all throughout the world that when you and I want to see God do something, we're stepping into the gravitational pull of sin in a fallen world that works exactly in the opposite direction of where we're trying to move things. Martin Luther said prayer is indeed a continuous, violent action of the spirit as it is lifted up to God. This action is comparable to that of a ship going against the stream. So this makes prayer very challenging. The reason why many don't pray, they're not ready for it to be so hard. I want to pray for somebody who's lost. Are you ready for it to be very hard? I want to pray for my marriage. I want to pray for uh, my children. I want to pray for a friend of mine. Are you ready for it to be very hard? The fallen world is operating in their lives, in their hearts, resisting the very things that God wants to see accomplished in them. If we will hold on to the terminologies, I think I may have put these in your outline, terminologies that describe fallen man. You hold on to those. When you're praying for somebody, you're praying for somebody who's dead. You're praying for somebody who's enslaved. The Bible says they are enslaved to sin. Can you, can you look at that person who won't seem to stop doing that thing in their life that's wrecking their life? And can you get a mental image, perhaps, of chains and shackles, a leash that only lets them go so far, and a taskmaster that whips them back into that place again? And you and I are saying, why don't you just stop that? Why do you keep doing that? Don't you realize you're wrecking your life? When you and I pray, have in our mind, we are praying against resistance. The Bible says that men are in darkness. They're not just in darkness. It says they are darkness. There is so much confusion. We like to see people just start making right decisions so their lives don't travel down a path of destruction. But they are in darkness and they are darkness. And so there's there's no source of light for them. So there's a massive amount of confusion in how to live life today. How to make laws and rules. And when we pray for lawmakers and we pray for people and decision-making places for wisdom, there is resistance to what we're praying in a fallen world. And so we have to be convinced that when we're praying for somebody who's lost, that we're ready for it to be hard. We're praying for people that we love, that are going through a challenging season. Persisting in prayer is prayer. Praying one time, going away, that's not prayer. That's not how Jesus presents prayer. He makes it a seeking and an asking and a knocking and a keep on doing it because God will answer you. Keep on 
praying. Keep on believing. Keep on persisting. Well, not only is there fallenness and a condition of man, but there are spiritual opposition as well. Remember this passage? I mean, if you're quick with the Bible, you can turn over to Mark chapter 9. Here's a situation. Verse 14. It says, When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Of course, Jesus deals with this demonic presence and its influence. Verse 27, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, I'm pretty sure these guys prayed. And what else did they do? Think they threw pixie dust on the guy? They'd never seen Jesus do that. They saw Jesus speak to demons. They saw Jesus encounter them. I'm pretty sure they did whatever it was that Jesus did. I think Jesus' definition of prayer means persistent prayer. I don't think it means just one time we did it. We walked up, we said, we said boo, get out. Nothing happened. I don't know what else to do. Maybe they didn't say boo, get out. That's probably like a modern translation or something. But they had, a, they had a persistent... Jesus' life was a persistent prayer. His life was. So when he meets this situation, not only is he able to persist, but he has authority. He's carrying something in him because he's a man who lives a life of persisting prayer. And when he encounters a demonic, it's a very different thing. But this story is very informing for us. It tells us that disciples can encounter the opposition of the enemy and the enemy win the day. Don't think too highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And we just think, oh, well, I just tell that foul demon to, you know, we run off and ramble like we're getting ready to do a boxing match. 1 Thessalonians 2.18. Paul says, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. This is the great apostle Paul. There's opposition out there. There is resistance out there. If you and I are going to pray, we're going to encounter the fallenness of man and the opposition of the Spirit. And therefore, prayer is not going to be easy. When you prepare to practice prayer, lean into it. Like there's going to be resistance that you meet. Be prepared to meet resistance with persistence. When you encounter that which doesn't seem to want to go away fast enough, doesn't want to respond, and I've been praying, persisting in prayer. That is the call for us to make. Well, beyond conquering the resistance out there, there's, prayer must conquer us. There's some stuff in us that makes prayer very hard. 
very difficult. I'm going to bullet these lists and just kind of move through them quickly, and you can maybe spend some time meditating on whatever ones connect with you the most. First, prayer has to overcome the weakness of the flesh. One of the reasons why prayer is hard is because I'm still strapped in this stinking fleshly body. The disciples had that problem. Remember Matthew 26, and you get the setting here? They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is after, after John 13 through 17, where Jesus is informing them. And he's saying so many things. Their ears should have been peaked. They're thinking, oh my goodness, what is about to happen? I've longed to have this meal with you. You remember the whole night? And then I'm going to go out of that setting into the garden. I mean, the, the world's about to come to an end. These guys don't get it. They think something incredible must be about to happen. So Jesus goes out to pray. This would be a good time to pray, wouldn't it? It would be a good time for all of us to join in prayer together. And Jesus even tells them, stay right there and pray. Verse 40, And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You will find out how weak your flesh really is when you decide you really do want to pray. You don't have a good definition for weakness until that moment. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. I mean, I don't know if Jesus kind of stood me on my feet and said, you couldn't pray for an hour? I think out of sheer embarrassment, I'd have figured out a way to pray. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were heavy. Can you remember this? The moment you decide, I'm going to pray, your body is going to take out pillows and comforters. You know, it will, it will, it will have, there'll be soft music playing in the background, warm milk and cookies. <laughs> I don't know what happens to your body when this occurs. You know, if you, up until that moment, you weren't attention deficit disorder. But now... Everything in the room has fresh interest to you. You haven't noticed that that light bulb's been burned out. I wonder how long the light bulb's been burned out. Why do we even choose those bulbs? I remember when we were picking that fixture out. And I mean, everything happens in this moment, right? Well, if you want to pray, know that's going to happen. Know it's going to happen. Listen, I don't make the mistake. My, My greatest time of prayer is late at night after everybody's in bed. And I don't make the mistake of sitting down. I have a bad knee. You, probably, you guys probably see me do this a lot up here. I have a bad knee, so staying on it is not a great thing to do. And just standing. So I walk. I have a track. I have a course. I walk through the neighborhood. It takes me an hour to walk it. And, if, and it's terrible when it's humid like this at night. But I'd rather come back sweating than being sitting in my chair. And I prayed for three minutes before I was out. I know my flesh. I know it. It's going to sleep if I sit down. So if you've wanted to have a prayer life and it turns into a slumber party, you just need to know that about yourself. This is why it's hard. You're living in this flesh body. It is hard. Now, a couple of things happen to us in prayer that are very important, vital things. First one, waiting on the Lord brings about needed changes in us. And sometimes we're coming because we kind of want to put the quarter in. We want to press the button. We want God to dispense the answer. And we want to move on. And, and God is doing something to us while we're praying that he puts a huge amount of, of priority on. Sometimes we only put the priority on the outcome. God, only give me the outcome. God puts priority on the effect that just being with him is having on us. Look at Psalm 40. 
interesting exchange here. Psalm 40, David says in verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. And he's waiting on God. He's, he's coming near. He's twining himself with God. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Now, I want you to notice something. If you're not careful and you don't read this whole psalm, you might think that, that David perhaps is referring to his circumstances. I waited on God and then all my circumstances changed and I found myself out of the miry clay with my feet up on a secure place. Okay, and if you read the rest of this with me, you're going to find out nothing has changed on the outside. But David's a different guy because he waited on God. David's perspective on his life became, I'm out of the miry clay. My feet are in a secure place. You know, David, uh, you're seeing things, pal. Open your eyes. Your life hasn't changed a bit. No, but for him it had. Something happened to him while he waited and had to keep coming and persisting with God. Verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet there are more than can be told. Look down in verse 11. As for you, O Lord... You will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Listen, for evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. This guy is still in trouble. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed together who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who desire my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Ah, ha, ha. You may, but may all who seek you, seek you, rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. See, David's situation drove him to God over and over and over again. And he prayed and it didn't go away. And it didn't change, but he changed. And then probably his circumstance changed as well. But God is changing us. Isaiah 40, verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. See, waiting on God does something to me. It brings a fresh sense of strength into my life. How many of you know how hard it is to muster up a prayer life when you're feeling weary? You start feeling like, ah, I don't need one more thing to do. Do you understand? You know, I'm like David. I sin. I can't even see. My life is piled up around me. I can't. I, I don't know where I'd find time to pray. Well, the answer to that, the source of strength, is going to come from waiting on the Lord. I know we all wrestle with goofy priorities that keep us from that. John fifteen seven. If you abide in me, at that hanging out with God, 
and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So this is how your prayer life becomes dynamic because I've been with God like David and God has changed me and now I'm praying stuff that sounds like God instead of praying the way I prayed out of my own ideas. Persevering prayer makes the petitioner ready to receive. There's something about waiting on God and turning to God and seeking God and making yourself available to God that when the answer comes, it doesn't fall like some brick out of heaven that nobody heard it drop. You know, it's kind of like you watch it. You see it coming. You, know, you, you, you move over here to receive it when it comes. Why? Because you, you're, you're heavenward. You're looking. Your face is toward God. You're seeing what he's doing. Well, how did that happen? Because that thing you were asking about over and over and over again, you had to keep coming and asking. You had to come back again and again and again and again. And when God responded, look what it says about the disciples in the upper room. Andrew Murray says, Intense, continued prayer prepared the disciples' hearts, opened the windows of heaven, and brought down the promised gift. The power of the Spirit could not be given without Christ sitting on the throne, but neither could it descend without the fervent, persistent prayer of the disciples. These guys are about to turn the world upside down. The Holy Spirit's going to fall on their lives. And for you know, the 50-day period, they've been seeking God. Their face has been toward God. What's been happening in their hearts? What kind of faith has been stirred up in their lives? You know, sometimes we have moments where we pray for God's Spirit to come touch our lives. I think sometimes... You know, God's going to drop the spirit over here and, you know, we're unfamiliar with it. It's kind of like, oh, I haven't prayed in like four weeks, you know, on an altar call and I'm going to come pray. And, uh, okay, you know, and we don't even, we, we haven't stared long enough at God to where faith has risen up in our hearts. Expectancy has risen up in our hearts. We've put down sin, things that are in the way. We've gotten serious about clinging to God and we've moved our life to right here. Now, I'm going to actually be in a place to receive from God. How is that getting done in me? By having to come again and again and stare at a holy God and learn of Him and be changed and come back again and again and again. You see that in Peter on the, on the rooftop of Acts chapter 10. Peter's out praying when the sheet gets lowered down in a revelation about reaching the Gentiles. These are, these are massive moments in church history. That came because people were waiting on God and persisting in prayer. The leaders of Antioch who launched Paul's missionary journeys, who brings the gospel to the West. You realize you circle the globe. Christianity went this way because a bunch of guys in Antioch were praying one day and the Holy Spirit directed them in that moment. They were worshiping. They were waiting on God. God dropped in their lap a revelation. Saul and Barnabas go that way. The whole world has been changed because of that prayer meeting. Go east from that location in Antioch and you find a different world. What a meeting that was. Over and over again in Scripture, you find people who had their face toward God so that when God drops what He wants to drop in their lives, their face is looking up to receive it. Having to come sometimes is what keeps us looking up. Persevering prayer builds faith. Listen, you're not going to keep coming back unless you believe. You'll know when you stop believing, you're going to stop coming. You really believe God rewards those who seek Him? Well, you're coming. You really believe God is great? He can overcome that situation? He can break through that bondage? You really believe that? You keep coming. 
If you start believing that's greater than God, you stop coming. You watch. You just monitor your prayer life. So built into it intrinsically is a strengthening of faith because of what we believe. R.A. Torrey says, There is no more blessed training in prayer than that which comes through being compelled to ask again and again and again, even though a long period of years before one obtains that which he needs from God. Persevering prayer acknowledges there are other factors God is taking into account. Listen, when we pray sometimes, God's doing a whole lot more than, than just what I'm praying about. Right, you wanna, you know, can I just kind of give you this to you real quickly here? It's in your outline so you can look at it more carefully on your own. Remember the day that Moses turns aside? It almost looks like, oops, Moses just happened to be out tending his flock and, oops, he turns aside and goes up the side of the mountain and has this exchange with God. God obviously knowing what's on Moses' mind. You know, God, where you been? Don't you know your people are in affliction and in bondage? What's going on? Without Moses saying that, God says, yeah, surely I have heard. I've heard the pleas of my people. He's been hearing the intercession of his people and their cries. I have come to deliver them. Okay, that's interesting. People have been crying out for a long time. Lord, why now? Why didn't you come the first day they cried out? I'm pretty sure today's not the first day they're crying out. Why didn't you come before? Because there were other things going on in the economy of God that they needed to continue to come, continue to come, because now is a day of deliverance. Well, if you back up with me to Genesis chapter 15, I'll read these verses quickly. We're going to close in prayer in just a second. In Genesis 15, remember when God makes this promise to Abraham? Verse 12. It says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with the great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Nobody seems to realize how significant that was. Lord, we've been crying out for years. Why haven't you answered us? Because I'm doing many things. The iniquity of the Amorites hasn't reached the boiling point yet. Oh, but when it does, I'll make sure and get the attention of the guy wandering around the foot of the mountain and I'll send him to deliver you. And Moses comes and he prays. Now, listen to what Deuteronomy chapter 9 says. Turn over a couple of books. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 3. This is just as they're going in now. They've come out of Egypt. They're free from the bondage of 400 plus years. And now they're about to go into the promised land. Listen to what God says. Know therefore, verse 3, today that he who gives over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you, right? Go into the promised land and destroy. Who are they going to destroy? The Amorites. The iniquity of the Amorites is now full. And God now is sending judgment on them. 
Do not, and listen to this, do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that, he, that the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. See, when these guys finally encounter the answer of God to the intercession that's been going on, there's other stuff that's been taking place. It's not just a matter of, we're carrying bricks in Egypt, God, can't you see how hard this is? Why don't you come and do something about it? Well, God is going to come and do something about it. Keep praying, keep asking, but take into account when you're praying, God's doing other things too that, that have timing to them. And for God, the Amorite's sin needed to reach a certain level so that his response was righteous. It's interesting to think the promised land wasn't just a gift to the Israelites. It was a demonstration of the righteousness of God in giving it to them. God wiped those nations out because of their sin and gave the land to the Israelites. Well, let me, let me close with this and we'll close in prayer. Remember that passage in Luke chapter 18. And Jesus asked this question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find a people who persist and pursue me and believe and are persistent in their belief. Well, I want that to be a question that soaks into us to face the realities of, you know, is that who we're going to be? We're going to be a people who don't just have prayer, but we persist in prayer. Prayer is persisting. There's not prayer and then there's persisting prayer. There's only persisting prayer in the kingdom and economy of God. Brian Edwards says, God waits to see whether those who say they are concerned for the state of the church and the nation are serious enough to get down to prayer. Is he still waiting for the church today? No church can ever expect revival unless it is praying for it. This is not to say that revival will not come to such a church, for God is too sovereign to be limited. But he is the God of the means as well as the end. And he has invited us to ask in order that we may receive. Let's pray. Father, would you seize this day in our lives as a church to prepare us for the challenging, difficult, resistive work of prayer. God, may we not be uninformed and jump into an arena and become instantly discouraged and want to quit because we found everything about praying harder than we thought. Ourselves, Situations that don't change, people that don't seem to be changing. Oh God, that's not out of bounds. That's exactly what you said it would be like. We are in prayer as we encounter forces that refuse to give way to us. We are in the realms of prayer as we fall asleep on the eve of the biggest event in history. We are in the realm of prayer when we are facing the challenge of not losing heart. Lord, this is the realm of persisting prayer. You informed us of it. Or would you make us to be a people who lean into prayer and are ready for it to be a challenge 
And we're not going away, Lord, because we do want to see a move of revival in our lives, in our lifetime, in this city, through this church, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.